one is trying to, let's see. Okay. All right, so we'll go ahead and get started. I'm just gonna start um, clicking the link here to get us to the live. All right, I'm good now. I, I was having some technical issues. <laughs> Someone has their phone on. All right, so we are here and thank you everyone for the virtual book launch. We are talking about today, my secret life, my journey through domestic violence. So if you haven't gotten the book, please do so already. Um, the book's authors are myself, Teresa R. Simon, we have Gabriella Smithers, Dr. Stacy Henderson Shaw, and Donna Marie, Tanya Austin, and Tracy Rector and Madeline Murphy. So those are all the authors. And today we have joining us Gabriella Smithers and Dr. Stacy L. Henderson Shaw. So thank you, ladies. Thank you for coming on so we can um, discuss. So um We'll go through, um, I'll start with Gabriella. Can you tell us a little bit without giving away, you know, too much, can you tell us a little bit about um, your story? Oh, I think her video, she's having technical issues. I think her video went out a little bit. We'll come back to Gabriella. Um, so Dr. Stacy, can you tell us a little bit about um, your story without giving a little bit away? Well, good evening, everyone. Um, I am a Navy veteran, and um, my experiences with domestic violence um, took place during my service during the uh, while I was uh, on active duty in the Navy. I was actually a naval officer at the time, and um, without giving too much away. Um, it caught me off guard, totally unexpected. Um, and I think that as I was going through uh, that time in my life, um, I was in a high profile job, you know, a lot of duties and responsibilities, and I was responsible for a number of personnel. And um, 
there, there's this there's this uh this image that you have to maintain you know you have to be strong you have to be professional you have to be reserved you know at all times so there's a certain expectation when you wear the uniform you know that you carry yourself a certain way and um all of that was fine however for me my uniform was not only indicative of my profession but it also served as a mask for me because i was hiding behind my uniform my uniform was at the forefront so the naval officer was all that everyone saw however beyond that uniform you know i am a human being you know and i was dealing with some pretty difficult stuff at home and um i know people think okay well you know you're in the military you got all this war fighting training you've been deployed on all these missions all over the world how is it that you could not deal with something like this and i was i've been asked that question several times and my response is because as a sailor you know as a military woman i was trained to deal with things that concern war. I was trained and taught how to deal with terrorism, foreign and domestic. However, I was not equipped to deal with terrorism at home. And so I was fighting a war on the foreign front. I was fighting the war here in the United States and I was fighting the war within the privacy of my own home. So I could not allow that to consume me. I still had a mission to carry out. I still had duties and responsibilities. There were people counting on me. And people look at those of us in the military as heroes. But what happens when the hero needs a hero? So I was caught in a very difficult and challenging situation. And what I did was I covered Uh, I made excuses. Um I hid the bruises. I could always explain away while I was late for yet another important meeting. I could always explain away why I just could not make it to this event or that event. And it became a pattern for me because I didn't want people to know. I was embarrassed. I was humiliated. and I was dealing with a private hell and I did not realize that by lying making excuses and keeping the secrets about the physical and psychological and emotional abuse that I was dealing with at home I didn't realize that by keeping that secret I was putting myself and my children in further danger and also I was protecting my abuser which at the time was my husband because once he figured out okay well she's not going to say anything you know and we even tried marriage counseling and the few times that we went to counseling he never brought up the abuse and I never brought up the abuse Now you would think that if we're sitting here in counseling um I would feel like okay well this is a safe space to bring it up 
But it wasn't because I knew that once the session was over, I would have to go home with this man. So we were trying to work it through. I was trying to make the marriage work. I was continuing to go to work, you know, battered, bruised, you know, wearing heavy eye makeup, wearing, you know, a, a sweater, long sleeves, wearing a jacket all the time because there was no way I could let people in on what was going on in my home. And it wasn't just about what was happening to me. I had to think about my children as well. You know, him being my husband, he knew where they went to school. You know, he had access to everything. We had mutual friends. So I couldn't do what some people said, you know, later on, which was to just get up and leave. How could I safely do that? And no one could ever tell me how to do that. And it's not just walking away from the home, you know, picking up the kids from school early, going to a hotel. The military is not a job that you can just quit at will. And true enough, I had a lot of services and resources available, but I think because I was so traumatized and I was so caught off guard, I could not rationalize how to sit down, make the phone call and have that conversation. I could not put it into words because I didn't want my business out there. I did not want my command to know what I was dealing with because I didn't want them to lose confidence in my abilities as a naval officer. And then I had to think about, you know, what's gonna happen with my children? You know, I didn't want kids, you know, at their schools knowing that this was taking place. I didn't wanna put them in a situation where they would be judged or they would be ridiculed. So I had to think about all of those things. And it was very, very difficult for me because I wanted out. I just had to figure out a way to do it safely. And that was the key for me, how to get out of this thing with my life and with my children's lives and with our mental faculties intact because we went through a lot. And they were children from a previous marriage. So here I am, I'm remarried and now I have my children in this situation. And as a mother, you know, I felt a lot of guilt, you know, and when my children hurt, I hurt. And I did not know how to fix it. That was something I couldn't do. I did not know how to fix it. And from the time that the abuse started to the time we were finally able to get out for good, it was nearly a year and during that year, I had listened to his excuses. I had accepted his apologies. I had gone back, you know, tried to make it work, tried to, like I said, fix it. And it was not something that I was able to do. And it wasn't something that I should have been trying to do. However, I was trying to save a marriage that was not salvageable. And 
as I was going through the healing and recovery process, and I still am, even though it's been quite a few years since this is since this abuse occurred. You know, we're divorced now, and we went through the whole legal process. Every day, I heal a little bit more. Every day, I'm still on the road to recovery because there are times that I do remember. There are times that I am triggered, whether it's the sound or a smell or a phrase that he used to say. And when those trigger incidents occur, it reminds me Initially, it used to upset me. And, you know, I would cry. I would stay up all night. I would be on guard. But as time went on, when I was triggered, the triggers served as a reminder that not only did I experience that, but I survived it. And I had to view it from a different perspective. And now, you know, when I think back on it or, you know, when I, when I, in my quiet time, when I sit and I reflect and when I share my story, I am reminded that even though the abuse blindsided me, there were red flags, there were warning signs. And for whatever reason, I overlooked them. I explained them away. And I did not want to accept that the mistreatment and the disrespect was leading to something more. I didn't want to accept that because I did not want that to be my truth. When in all actuality, that is exactly what it was. I was in an abusive marriage. No matter how many counseling sessions or how many apologies, how many makeup dinners, how many dozens of roses. My safety and my life was on the line and I did everything I could to cover that because I was ill-equipped to get the help that my children and I needed. Thank you. Um, so actually, for those of you that are just joining us, we just want to let you know that this is the virtual book launch, NDV Healing and Support Incorporated, executive director and founder, myself, Teresa Simon. This is the virtual book launch that we are having today for My Secret Life, My Journey Through Domestic Violence. So please go ahead and get the book if you haven't already. And that was Dr. Stacey Henderson Shaw. She was discussing about telling her story in the book and why she decided to tell her story. So thank you so much for coming on. And then also I'm gonna shoot out really quickly to Gabriella Smithers. She is also an author on the book um, and she is also going to talk a little bit why she decided to share her story. Thank you, Gabriella. Hi, you guys. Thank you so Hi. much. <laughs> um, I decided to share my story because I have been silenced for so long and um, now as a 36 year old, I wanted to be a voice and be a beacon to those who were going through the same thing that I went through or um, knew someone who was going through um, the exact same thing that I went through, which is domestic violence. 
Um, I was 17 when I married my ex-husband. Um, and I think that was a trauma response in itself. Um, just having recently found out that I was adopted and I didn't feel like I belonged. So my whole goal in life was to um, find my own family. And I literally went to the first person that showed any type of attention. And while there were so many red flags, um, the nature, the nature and who, who I am, um, just guided me to say to myself, oh, I can just give him this immense amount of love and he will um, change and be um, this wonderful person that I had envisioned him to be. Um, and while there were good times, it was completely bogged down uh, with a lot of tumultuous um, moments. And between being shoved into dressers when I was six months pregnant, nine months pregnant, thrown over banisters, choked. Uh, I mean, the list goes on. I mean, I think one of my worst memories was him taking my head and slamming it in um, the Vent Hood oven range because I had forgotten to pack his lunch. Um, so simple things to large things would escalate. Um, and so I started to just really begin to walk on eggshells and I lost myself. Um, I used to think of myself as being an extroverted social butterfly and um, I eventually turned into this very quiet, docile mouse and people around me started to not recognize me and, and who I was. And so um, one poignant person who stood by me the entire time um, said, hey, I don't know what's going on, but you are not who I know. Um, and I need you to speak to somebody. Didn't say anything for a couple of years. And I decided that I would talk to my pastor at church. And in through that, me finding the strength to do that and then to come out of that being called a liar and that's not who you know he's shown himself to be um it really shut me down i ended up staying in the marriage for an additional six years so we were married a total of 10 years um the moment that i decided to leave uh which was december the 8th 2014 um he had come home from my rank a week prior and my tail trying to get the house straight and and do everything um, that I knew how he liked it to be, um, but still nothing was ever perfect. And that particular day, um, he just came back and said, you know, I'm done with you, I'm done with all of this. Um, and I was still trying to fight for something that really needed to be deaded anyway. And he picked me up by my neck and, and he's 6'4", and I was leaning down looking at him, but I lost all fight. Um, within myself and I was willing him to just squeeze a little harder um, because I was ready to go. I had two children and I didn't even have the fight or the will to live for them. I was that dead um, inside. But I think it was at that moment where he saw that I wasn't fighting him back or trying to get away. Um, he lost the enjoyment um, of it. And he just tossed me aside like I was a rag. And I remember um, blacking out, but trying to make sure that I didn't hit one of the kids, my body slamming into one of the children. And so um, when I came to, it was like, baby, you have to go. This is not gonna get better. And 3 a.m. on December the 8th, 2014, I called my dad and I said, I'm ready to come home. Didn't ask any questions. And he came down to South Carolina, picked me up, 
and two children and everything else that I had. And we moved back to Richmond, Virginia. And that's a part of my story. I'm still healing. I'm still um, trying to grow in my life um, and, and be an advocate to everyone that has been behind me, um, but also be a mentor for those that are following in my, my, foot, my footsteps. So that's my story. Thank you. And one of the things that um, Dr. Stacy touched on was, well, she touched on a couple things. She touched on actually abuse in the military because that, that happens a lot more than people know that there's you know, a domestic violence, you know, in the military households. The other thing she touched on too was, um, you know, counseling with the abuser. Um, a lot of times that's actually not recommended because, you know, of the imbalance in the power. And then of course, because of the fact that when you're in counseling, there's only so much that the victim can say because they know that they still have to go home with the abuser. Right. Correct. And, and that was a part of my um, problem too. We tried counseling one time. And that one time, by the time we got home, it ended terribly. I mean, that was probably one of the top five worst beatings I'd ever gotten. Because of you, you went to the counseling? Yes, you know, with him and we went to counseling on base. So he was embarrassed that, you know, I had even told someone on base. Mm-hmm. Um, or in, in the military, he didn't want anybody in his squadron to know uh, what was going on. Of course, everything was supposed to be a secret. Right. Mm-hmm. And um, so, Stacy, how did how did the? Can you talk a little bit like about some a little bit about like your experience um, with being in the military and the abuse? You could because you were you weren't able to really like you felt like at the time, like you weren't really able to, to go to anyone because of being in the military? That is correct. And I say that because, you know, I was responsible for, for personnel, you know, and Mm -hmm. the mission is the mission and we have to be mission focused, you know, and I wanted to keep my morale high. So, you know, like I said, I covered, you know, I hid the bruises. I put that uniform on every day. You know, and sometimes it was painful to do that, but I knew that I had a job to do. And again, I didn't want people to know what was going on in my home. That was very personal. And something as serious as that, I didn't want people judging me. You know, how can you come in here as a division officer or as a department head, you know, and lead people when you can't handle your own personal life? I didn't want that stigma and I didn't want to be seen as weak. And I didn't also, I did not want people to think that I could not do my job. The issue was with hiding it, I probably would have been much more effective at my job because there were times that I did show up late for work. You know, and there were a few meetings that I missed because I just didn't have the physical strength or the mental capacity to pull myself together, get dressed and show up for a day at work that day. 
And that was very difficult because it, it does affect your performance over time because now you have a pattern of behavior. Well, why is she always late? Or she always seems to have an answer for every question that we ask. She knew this meeting was at nine. Why is she just getting here at 1015? And we've already called her half a dozen times and she didn't answer the phone. You know, I had to explain those things. I had to give an account for my behavior because little things add up to big things. So no, I did not want people to know that I was dealing with that because it was too personal. And the unfortunate thing is when you're in a leadership position and you're responsible for the safety and the lives of other personnel, you have to make sure that you're focused so that you can provide them with the resources that they need. And that was what I did. I focused on what they needed. And I poured myself into work as best I could to take my mind off it because I didn't want to deal with that. I kind of like put it on the shelf. I put it on the back burner. I did everything I could to avoid it. But there comes a time when you come to yourself and you realize this isn't right. How can I provide help and resources to others when I wouldn't take my own advice, when I wouldn't tap into those, own, those resources for my own self and my own family? And there were times when mentally my head just wasn't in the game. It just wasn't. Because I was thinking in the back of my mind, Stacey, you need to be doing this for you. It's not just about the mission. It was also about me. And I wasn't taking care of me. And we, when, when we don't take care of ourselves, we are of no use to other people. And it did. Over time, it did. It had a long-term effect on me. Because... Um, when I look back on it, you know, I've second guessed myself thousands of times, you know, did I make the right decision? You know, did I give this sailor the best advice? You know, did I do my due diligence by serving them in the manner and capacity that was expected of me? I honestly don't know. I honestly don't. Because like I said, I did have some doubts and there were times when I should have just spoke up or just stepped aside and let someone else handle it. But I was trying to balance it all. I was trying to make it make sense. And at the end of the day, it, it just didn't. It just didn't. That's that's so true. And you touched on, well, you're touching on so many good points. So thank you. Um, one of the points that you touched on was like, you know, um, coming to work and showing up, you know, to having to showing up to work late and, you know, or meetings late because with domestic violence, it does, you know, it has a major effect on your work. And yeah. it's actually statistically um, victims of domestic violence lose a total of 8 million days of paid work per year. Um, and that's not even including, like I said, missed meetings or coming to late meetings and things like that mm -hmm. because of the violence, you know, you have a black eye, it's very difficult to come into work. Um, you know, especially in, you know, professional settings and you have to run a meeting, you know, how can you run a meeting with a black eye? And, and so 
um, it's really good that you touched on that because it affects it affects the workforce. And there are so many workforces, you know, still to this day that don't have anything, um, any policies in place or any type of support in place for domestic violence victims. So that's something that that is very needed. Yes, it is. And I think that we don't I think that a lot of times people think that because it's a personal issue, then it has no place in the workplace. So there is no need for the policy because that's something that should be taken care of at home on a personal level. And, it, and you shouldn't be bringing your home into work just like you should not be taking your work into your home. People want to see that fine line drawn and never crossed. And I think that's why there are no policies, policies in place to address it. Yeah. And I definitely think, yeah, that's something that that way of looking at is like we have to shift away from that way of looking at it because it, it affects it affects everyone. Yes, it does. Um, and, you know, that person can't be a whole person um, if, if they're they're dealing with something like that at, at home. You know, how can they really focus on their on their work? Exactly. And Gabriella, what, what what ultimately made you decide to leave? Like, what was that ultimate conclusion where you decided to leave? What brought you to that? I think for me, um, that moment when I was thrown um, right on the that the cusp of December the eighth, twenty fourteen, and I was trying. I knew I was going to black out, but I was trying so hard to make sure that my body did not land on my son that was at the bottom of the stairs. Um, I knew then that I either could be killed or I would have killed him simply because I would have landed on him. He was only maybe like two at the time. So, um, and then even with that, I said, if we stay here, they are going to grow up around this and they are going to pick up his habits mm -hmm. and pick up his mannerisms and mm -hmm. become him. So I knew that if I was going to stop the cycle, I needed to stop it then. That's, that's such a great point that you bring up too, because so, so many of us have children and you don't want your children to grow up in that environment and then carry on those same, you know, behavior. You want better for your children. So that, that's such a good point too, that you bring up that you wanted, you wanted to leave because you knew that your children were, were going to grow up watching this. Absolutely. And Stacey, um, what was your app, your your breaking point where you just said to yourself, like, okay, I, I just really need to get out. What was your breaking point? Um, I was to the point of just exhausting. I was so exhausted mentally, physically, uh, psychologically. I was just tired. I couldn't think of another excuse. I was tired of telling lies. I was tired of trying to hide it. I just couldn't do it anymore. And again, like I said, um, my goal was I needed to get out alive. And I needed my children to get out alive because I took two children into this marriage. And um, and I don't want to tell too much of the story, you know. No, no, don't. <laughs> we want them to get the book. <laughs> you get to the point where I, I just can't take it anymore. You know, and 
the back and forth, the in, you know, going to counseling, you know, in and out of shelters, you know, I get away, you know, you catch up with me, you bring me back. It was just too much. It was just a vicious cycle of abuse. Yes. And even there were even times when, when we reconciled, I'd go back, even if it's not physical, now it's mind games. It's playing tricks on me. It's the constant threats. It's the having the weapon visible. It's the sitting in the living room, you know, cleaning your gun. It's the, uh, I come in from work, you're sitting at home and you got six, eight, 10, 12 of your hunting knives laid out on the coffee table. I mean, all these signs, all these messages, and I had to quote unquote, get it. And trust me, I did. And even though sometimes, you know, he didn't say anything, I knew what it meant. I knew what it meant. Because why do you need to sit in the living room and clean your gun? Why do you need all of your hunting knives laid out on the coffee table? This is the common area in the house. So he was sending me messages. He was sending me signs, even when he wasn't saying anything but his body language. And, you know, a, a few times that I did go to the emergency room or things of that nature, we're riding in the car. He's driving me to the emergency room and he'll reach over and open the glove compartment. The gun is in there and he'll close it back. Again, we're on our way to the ER. And that was his way of reminding me putting me in my place, so to speak. And it goes back to, you know, something he once told me, um, you know, true enough, I was in the military and I wore this uniform, but he let me know that uniform is not bulletproof. And that stuck with me. And it's just like the restraining order. It's just a piece of paper. And the abuser reminds you of that. They know what the boundaries are. You know, they know what they should and should not be doing. But they have no problem telling you. It's just a piece of paper. And in my case, as he reminded me more than once, my uniform was not bulletproof. And I had to remember that. I had to keep that in mind. Yes. And restraining orders are important, but I think what the issue that comes into play with the restraining orders is oftentimes they're not enforced. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes, um, you know, a person will get them, but then um, when they're violated, unfortunately, the abuser sometimes will get a slap on the wrist. And that's something that that really has to change. There has to be Absolutely. a lot more legal reform when it comes to domestic violence. I think for my, myself, um, my ultimate breaking point for me to leave was that I finally just came to the realization that he's not going to change. Um, it finally clicked that he, I started to see that he will keep his, his mask on for so long and he's only going to be nice with that mask on for so long. And then he's going to go back to his real self. And it finally started to click that, that that's only going to last for so long. So I was like, yeah, I, I I'm done with him and his mask. So Gabriella, um, what do you want people to ultimately take away from your story? Like, what would you want them to learn? 
Well, before I answer that, I want to hit on about those silent reminders. And yes. she talked about, you know, had her husband having his hunting knives out or he'd be cleaning his guns, you know, right in the common area. And, you know, as I was listening, that that really struck a chord with me because my ex-husband he had a lot of silent reminders, you know, he would set his combat boots in any random space just to remind me that he could kick me in the head again. He did it one time. I have no hearing in the, the left side of my, my ear uh, because my ear connected with his combat boot. And so ever since that day, um, he would set it around anywhere randomly on a kitchen counter, on the couch, on a pillow, just to remind me, hey, so I it just really reminded myself like, wow, there were so many silent reminders, but that's one that um, stuck out. Mm -hmm. um, to answer your question, Teresa, um, I want people to take away from my story that there is healing in the end, but you have to make the choice. Mm -hmm. um, and you go back so many times. Um, statistically, they say it takes seven times before you truly realize that you have to leave for real. So, and I did that. I would make a decision to go and then pack my stuff and then decide not to go. I did that nine times. Um, so ultimately, I think what I want people to know is that it won't change. Don't go to the seven. Allow it to happen one time. And once that one time is up, go. It's not going to change. Yes, thank you. And you, yeah, you're definitely right. Statistically, um, it takes seven times, seven times to leave an abusive relationship. And, and oftentimes people, um, you know, they get out and then, and then unfortunately, sometimes they go back. And unfortunately, during one of those seven times, sometimes they don't make it out. Right. Dr. Stacy, what would you, you want people to learn ultimately from your story? Um, from my story, for me... When you make up in your mind to leave, make sure that you do it at a time that is safe. And I have to say that because you can't just get up and go. And it doesn't matter if you have access to money. It doesn't matter if you have all this family. It doesn't matter if you have all these friends. You can go and lay on their couch or sleep in their spare bedroom. If you are in this intimate relationship, your partner knows your, pa your patterns. They know your families. They know your friends. So what they're going to, they're going to seek you out. They're going to go look for you. And I had this happen to me a couple times. And I kept, again, going back because there were times when I felt safer in the abuse, the abuse situation. Then when I left, because the threat was, if you try to leave, I will kill you. I will kill these kids. Mm -hmm. That's a heavy burden to have on your shoulder. That's a lot to deal with. Because now I have to think about just the attempt to leave could cost me my life and the lives of my children. So you have to have a solid plan in place. You have to have a plan. And I tell people, 
I stayed for the same reason I left. I stayed because I wanted to live. And I eventually left because I wanted to live. It had to be a safe out for me. And it had to be an escape plan that had no return. And once I got to that point, I did not look back. I did not go back because even in leaving, I lost. I lost. I lost. And that's all I can say about that. Yeah, I definitely think, um, I definitely understand what you mean by that statement. There's so many, because of domestic violence, it encompasses so many things, um, uh, physical abuse, emotional, sexual, psychological, and um, spiritual, as well as financial abuse. And what happens oftentimes is once the victim has left the abusive relationship, a lot of times financially, um, it is very difficult to recover after the abusive relationship. So, the, and that's not even an, um, going into the emotional things that you deal with, the PTSD and things like that. So there is a lot that, that happens to the victim after they leave the abusive relationship. It takes a long time to recover from that. Um, and one of the things that you touched on was having having a plan, and that is so important too. You you can get with your local domestic violence agencies and sit down or with an advocate and sit down and come up with a safety exit plan because it is important to have that safety exit plan so that you know um, what you're you're going to be prepared to do and make sure you're prepared and you have everything that you're you know set in place so that you know how you can leave safely. Exactly. And one of the things too, um, I wanted to touch on too was, um, well, for me, I, I ended up wanting to tell my story because for a couple of reasons, I know that a lot of people do not um, fully understand the trauma bond. And at the time, you know, before I under, um, became educated on it, I didn't understand the trauma bond. And that was one of the reasons why I stayed. It's also, um, one of the, the things that I found out was that I had a trauma bond in childhood with one of my parents, which caused me to get into a relationship where I had a trauma bond with my abuser. So it was something that I wanted to make sure I, I told my story so that people can really understand about the trauma bond and how it is an addiction and how, how difficult that can be to break. Definitely. And what else um, would you want to say, um, Gabriella, to anyone that's watching, especially if they're they're still in a, an abusive relationship? I think that um, if they're still currently in the relationship, they they need to be around people that are supportive um, of them and their decision um, to stay, um, and then also be supportive in their decision to leave. Um, you can, in my volunteerism, there are so many women that I see on a daily basis that decide not to leave. They don't need my criticism. They need to know that they have someone that they can come to so that when they are ready, they know they can trust you enough to say, come help me. So I think ultimately support is the major thing. Definitely. People have this misconception that they can kind of tough love someone out of an abusive relationship but you cannot, it has to be their decision and it has to be something that they're able to see on their own and they decide for themselves that, that they wanna get out.
-hmm. So supporting them is the best thing that you can ultimately do. And Dr. Stacy, um, before we close, um, what would you like to say to anyone out there that's watching and if they're in an abusive relationship or what would you like to say to anyone out there? I would like to say, um, take a look at the resources that are available. Um, the support aspect from a family member or friends, that is huge. And when you're seeking that support, make sure it's someone that you can trust. It shouldn't be a mutual friend that you have with the abuser. And that was one of the mistakes that I made. You know, we had mutual friends and you have to make sure that you have, you need a cold word, you need uh, an emergency stash, you need a safety plan for the children. And you need to know enough about yourself to know that once you make that decision to leave, be gone for good. And I say that because with the going back and the going back and the going back that I was doing, it was getting worse. It got progressively worse. Reason being, he had already told me what the consequences would be if I left. So when he was able to convince me to come back, yes, it did. It got worse. It got worse. So just um, be safe, be smart, and be prayerful and be hopeful because you can get out. You can. And it may take some planning, it may take some doing, and it's going to take a lot of resources because once you're on the other side of this thing, you gotta give yourself time to heal. You have to forgive yourself enough to recover because if you don't, that guilt of why didn't I leave? Why did I stay? Why did I hide? Why did I lie? Why did I keep silent? You're gonna wrestle with those feelings and you have to, you have to be prayerful and just stay committed to, to your survival and to your safety. And if you have children, if you don't feel courageous enough to leave for you, leave for them, leave for them. Definitely. And one of the things um, I wanted to touch on too um, is that you said that it gets worse. Statistically, it does get worse. Mm -hmm. So it is um, important that people know that statistically it will get worse, you know, each time that you go back. Um, the other thing I wanted to touch on too, you touched on healing. Healing is, I tell this to um, the survivors, especially when we have our support group sessions, healing is not a linear. Healing is not linear by any means. So it is a process and you will have to work at that process every day. And it's, it's different for, it looks different for everyone. Um, you know, so don't look at someone else and their process because it's different for everyone. And, you know, some people, um, they say, oh, well, I think it should be, you know, by this such and such time. There's, there's no time frame on that. 
Um, it's not a linear process. It's something that you have to work on every day. Um, and you need to, you know, make sure that you go ahead and get that therapy that you need. But it it's definitely a process. The healing takes time. Yes. And thank you, Donna, for joining us. I'm so glad that you were able to join us. <laughs> Donna, difficulties. <laughs> no, thank you. We're glad to have you on because all of you, um, when I was reading the book, because once we got the books, you know, we got to see everyone's stories. All of you have such powerful testimonies. So I was really just blown away by some of you guys' stories. So Donna, can you tell us just a little bit without giving too much, but can you tell us just a little bit about your story and why you decided to share? Well, hi everybody. I'm Donna Marie Lambert and um, I'm glad to be here. Glad to be a survivor for 13 years. And the reason why I wrote my book, wrote out my chapter, um, because, you know, over the years I've always began to write about my, just my life, you know, and I would always get stuck. And where I would get stuck was when I was a little girl. You know, when I was a little girl and, and I got molested, that's where I would get stuck at. And I couldn't move any further. And my, what gave me my voice was like, I, I you know, I, I don't want to be rep repetitive, but my cousin that got killed, you know, that's what gave me my voice because I had no idea, you know, I just like they had no idea. My family had no idea about all the abuse that I had been through. I had no idea. Um, and when she passed away, when she got murdered, it's like I felt like I had to do something, you know, and, and here we are fast forward here. Um, I decided to write the book because this is the real reason. Someone said to me, girl, you have a story and are you going to hold on to that story or are you going to tell your story, show up and help someone? And I thought about that for a whole year, a whole year before the opportunity came up for me to share my story in a chapter. And um, domestic violence is no joke and you don't even realize that you still deal with it. Although I've been out for 13 years, I can't even watch certain movies because it sends triggers it, through me, you know, that I can't even watch certain uh, movies. And um, you know how you say you watch a movie and you'll watch it? certain movie, movies I will never watch again because it reminds me too much of my life, you know, um, but on an extreme level though, I, I gotta say that it was more extreme, uh, but it's still, the triggers, you know, and the hurt and the pain and wondering, like, why, why did it happen to me? Like, why did you do that to me? Like, what was wrong with me? You know, that you chose out of all these children that you chose to do this to me? Why? You know, why was I the victim? You know, um, yeah, so I, I definitely, I, the title of my chapter is Get Out, no, Cry Out, Get Out, and Stay Out. And the reason why is because I've been in, other than the molestation, I was in three domestic violence relationships. So it took me three relationships, being a battered woman, to finally get out, you know, after three of them. 
from the age of 19, well, eight, 17, actually from the age of 17 until I don't know what age I was, but it was 2007. So it was, I wasn't fifth, quite 50 yet. And, um, but it took me all that time to, um, to get out and stay out. Mm-hmm. And like Teresa had hit on it before she had been uh, not in a relationship for 10 years. And, but she didn't do certain work. And that was the same for me. I stayed single for five years here, five years there, but there was no real intense work done to address the issues of domestic violence, you know? So yeah, I'm sharing. So hopefully my, my story will help someone. And that's the, that's the main reason for me sharing my story. Thank you. Yes, thank you. Yes, I did. I actually, um, because there was a 10 year gap in between the two abusive relationships. So I'm, um, because of that 10 year gap, I mistakenly thought that um, things were fine and I could just move on and everything would be fine. But during that 10 year gap, I did not get any therapy. I didn't seek any help for anything. So I didn't get to the root of the problem. And the root of the problem was the trauma bond that I had established with a parent when I was younger, but I didn't get to that root of that problem. So then I ended up in that second abusive relationship 10 years later. So yes, that's why I always say that you have to do the work and you need to go to counseling because a lot of times victims follow them, find themselves back in another abusive relationship and they, or they find themselves in several abusive relationships because they don't take the time to do the work and go to counseling and to heal and to understand the root of why, the cause of why you are attracting these people in your life. And Donna, I, I know in your story, without giving too much away, I know you talk about like, um, you know, an incident too, like where there were people watching. Um, can you talk just a little bit about that? Because that is something that, that actually does happen more often than people think it does, where, you, you know, you're being abused and you're, you're in a public place or at least where people can see you and you're hoping that someone will, at the very least, call call the police or call 911 and and when that doesn't happen you're just left there to try to figure out how you're going to get out of the situation on your own yeah so you know of course years pass by and i realized that the the, my ex-husband's um mother and that they had a dysfunctional relationship so um it was her um her, her husband and her one of her friends her neighbors and they were sitting on the porch when he began to beat me down the porch, <laughs> up the block, down the block, back up the steps. And they literally sat there. They did not budge. They didn't budge. And, you know, at that time, we didn't have cell phones or anything back in the day. So, um, you know, not even cordless phones, really, you know, so but no one made an effort to do anything. No one told him, stop doing that, get off of her, nothing. They just sat there literally like I deserved what I was getting, you know, like this was a deserved beating and that's how they sat there. Or like they was watching a show, you know, like there was a movie and they were just sitting there with a beer enjoying the movie, you know? And that was very, very hurtful because I was being beat like he was busting my behind, you know, and 
I just I just couldn't understand, even though I realized that they were dysfunctional. We were all dysfunctional, you know what I mean? In the whole thing, you know, the whole relationship thing. Cause I lived in, in an apartment in her house. So we rented an apartment out of his mother's house. So I lived there. Um, but I, I, to this day, I, well, I do know why, cause it was very dysfunctional, you know, but until I got to the point of understanding what dysfunction was even in my own life, I, I, of course, I didn't understand that. I used to always say I never met mean people till I left the Bronx. You would think that leaving the Bronx, New York and moving to Westchester County, you know, where all the, you know, high sedity, so to speak, people live. Um, <laughs> I just never thought that I would meet people so cruel and so mean and just to sit there, you know. So, yeah, they, they sat right there and. Yeah. They did. Yeah. That's a hard thing. That's why I really am glad that you touched on that, you know, in in your story, because it is a hard thing that it happens. Like I said, it happens more often than people really realize. In fact, there are some people that um, uh, we had a panel previously where they were telling their story and there was quite a few women who, who had that similarity in their story where they were abused in public and there were people that did absolutely nothing, not one person because you know even if you you feel like a lot of times people feel like they don't want to intervene at the very least you know maybe you could you know go in your house and call 911 from your house but there are there are a lot of people that don't that don't take the time to to call 911 unfortunately and and hopefully by shedding light on that we bring attention to that so that people do you know call 911 because you could be saving someone's life yeah but you know what i think it is too mm-hmm. i think don't want to get involved in domestic affairs and especially you know we have the rate we leave what it takes us about seven times before we actually leave and I think that I had already left probably once or twice before that maybe maybe once or twice so they're saying hey she he's gonna beat up and down the block up the stairs down the steps and she's still, still gonna be right there with him so why are we gonna get involved and I think that that's what happens too is that they see the way we act, we say in it, so they don't want to get involved because it's like to them, it doesn't make sense. And he, and I I, I guess the mother said, well, he ain't going to kill her. You know, I I guess, you know, I guess she was like, well, she ain't going to kill her. You know, this has happened before and it's normal. It was a normal thing, right? It was a normal thing. So why call 911? Because this happens, this happens very, very often. So, and she's still with them. She's still here. So why, why are we going to stop drinking our beer stop, stop doing what we're doing to help her when she's going to, she's going to stay with them anyway. I think that also comes from the fact that people don't understand domestic violence. Um, For starters, he could have killed you. Um, I know, you know, for people from the outside looking in, they think, oh, well, you know, they're just having a fight, but no, it, it can he, that person can kill them. So you may, maybe you don't want to intervene because maybe you feel like, you know, something may happen to you if you intervene, but at the least um, calling 911 can save someone's life. But I think, like you said, people from the outside looking in, they don't understand domestic violence and they, they think, well, this person will just go back to them. So why should I call the police? But then that's not understanding why the victim goes back. A lot of it, sometimes it's financial. Sometimes it's 
um, you know, emotional. There's, there's a lot of different reasons why victims stay and why they go back. But one of the biggest reasons is the trauma bond and the trauma bond is an addiction. And with any addiction like alcohol or with drugs, it's a, it's very difficult to break. So therefore victims do, do find themselves going back. Um, the trauma bond for those that are listening, it's a type of toxic bond when the abuser alternates between creating highs and lows within the relationship and offers reward or punishment as they deem fit. Um, the cycles of abuse are followed by intermittent love and reward and the abuser trains the victim that happiness is solely dependent on how well the victim can please the abuser. The trauma bond can outlive the relationship, leaving the victim craving comfort from the very person that hurt them. The trauma bond is an addiction like alcoholism, for example, and that can be difficult to break. Trauma bonds occur or they can form in childhood um, because of childhood trauma, trauma or because of a trauma bond with parents or caregivers. Um, because of its addictive nature, it can be difficult to break free from on your own and therapy helps those who are experiencing a trauma bond. So it is an addiction um, with that, those highs and lows oxytocin is being released, which is the same chemical for when um, a woman has a baby. And those can, it, it, may, it becomes addictive in nature and it's, it's very hard to break. So a lot of times that is the reason why victims go back to the abuser. So I think just people having that understanding and that understanding of domestic violence and, and it is, it's, it's very complex, but just having that, that understanding of domestic violence and of the trauma bond will help people understand and, and also be able to help them better help victims. And hopefully more people will um, call 911 if they, if they see something like that. Yeah. Well, thank you ladies for joining us. Um, I really appreciate it. First and foremost, I wanna you know, just let everyone out there know to please go ahead and get the book, um, My Secret Life, My Journey Through Domestic Violence. There are um, seven awesome stories in here and they're all very unique and, and different and just very powerful testimonies. So I really encourage everyone out there to go ahead and get the book if you haven't already. And I wanna thank um, all the ladies for joining us. I wanna thank um, Donna, Gabriella, and Dr. Stacy for joining us. Thank you so much, ladies. Thank you for having us. Thank you. You are, everyone have a great night. Yeah, have a great night. Love you all. <laughs>